Chapter Nine of Mystery of a Handsome Cab by Fergus Hume, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Mister Gorby is satisfied at last. In spite of his long walk and still longer drive, Brian did not sleep well that night. He kept tossing and turning, or lying on his back, wide awake, looking into the darkness and thinking of White. Towards dawn, when the first faint glimmer of morning came through the Venetian blinds, he fell into a sort of uneasy doze. Haunted by horrible dreams, he thought he was driving in a hansom. When suddenly he found White by his side, clad in white cerements, grinning and gibbering at him with ghastly merriment. Then the cab went over a precipice, and he fell from a great height, down, down, with the mocking laughter still sounding in his ears, until he woke with a loud cry and found it was broad daylight, and that drops of perspiration were standing on his brow. It was no use trying to sleep any longer, so with a weary sigh he arose and went to his tub, feeling jaded and worn out by worry and want of sleep. His bath did him some good. The cold water brightened him up and pulled him together. Still, he could not help giving a start of surprise when he saw his face reflected in the mirror, old and haggard-looking, with dark circles round the eyes. "A pleasant life I'll have of it if this sort of thing goes on," he said bitterly. "I wish I had never seen or heard of White." He dressed himself carefully. He was not a man to neglect his toilette, however worried and out of sorts he might feel. Yet, notwithstanding all his efforts, the change in his appearance did not escape the eye of his landlady. She was a small, dried-up little woman with a wrinkled, yellowish face. She seemed parched and brittle. Whenever she moved, she crackled, and one went in constant dread of seeing a wizened-looking limb break off short like a branch of some dead tree. When she spoke, it was in a voice hard and shrill, not unlike the chirp of a cricket. When, as was frequently the case, she clothed her attenuated form in faded brown silk gown, her resemblance to that lively insect was remarkable. And as on this morning she crackled into Brian's sitting room with the Argus and his coffee, a look of dismay at his altered appearance came over her stony little countenance. "Dear me, sir," she chirped out in her shrill voice as she placed her burden on the table. Are you took bad? Brian shook his head. Want of sleep, that's all, Mrs. Sampson. He answered, unfolding the Argus. Ah, that's because you ain't got enough blood in your head," said Mrs. Sampson wisely, for she had her own ideas on the subject of health. If you ain't got blood, you ain't got sleep. Brian looked at her as she said this, for there seemed such an obvious want of blood in her veins that he wondered if she had ever slept in all her life. There was my father's brother, which of course makes him my uncle," went on the landlady, pouring out a cup of coffee for Brian. And the bloody ad was something astounding, which it made him sleep that as long as they had to draw pints from him before he'd awake in the morning. Brian had the Argus before his face, and under its friendly cover he laughed quietly to himself. His blood poured out like a river," went on the landlady, still drawing from the rich stores of her imagination. And the doctor was struck dumb with astonishment at seeing the Niagara which burst from him. But I'm not so full-blooded myself. Fitzgerald again stifled a laugh and wondered that Mrs. Sampson was not afraid of being treated as were Ananias and Sapphira. However, he said nothing but merely intimated that if she would leave the room, he would take his breakfast. And if you wants anything else, Mister Fitzgerald, she said, going to the door, you knows your way to the bell as easy as I do to the kitchen. And with a final chirrup, she crackled out of the room. As soon as the door was closed, Brian put down his paper and roared, in spite of his worries. 
He had that extraordinary vivacious Irish temperament, which enables a man to put all trouble behind his back, and thoroughly enjoy the present. His landlady, with her Arabian night-like romances, was a source of great amusement to him, and he felt considerably cheered by the odd turn her humour had taken this morning. After a time, however, his laughter ceased, and his troubles came crowding on him again. He drank his coffee, but pushed away the food which was before him, and looked through the Argus for the latest report about the murder case. What he read made his cheek turn a shade paler than before. He could feel his heart thumping wildly. "'They've found a clue, have they?' he muttered, rising and pacing restlessly up and down. "'I wonder what it can be. I threw that man off the scent last night, but if he suspects me there will be no difficulty in his finding out where I live. Bah! What nonsense I am talking! I am the victim of my own morbid imagination. There is nothing to connect me with the crime, so I need not be afraid of my shadow. I've a good mind to leave town for a time, but if I am suspected that would excite suspicion.' "'Oh, Madge, darling!' he cried passionately. "'If you only knew what I suffer, I know that you would pity me. But you must never know the truth. Never, never!' And sinking into a chair by the window, he covered his face with his hands. After remaining in this position for some minutes, occupied with his own gloomy thoughts, he arose and rang the bell. A faint crackle in the distance announced that Mrs. Sampson had heard it, and she soon came into the room, looking more like a cricket than ever. Brian had gone into his bedroom and called out to her from there. "'I'm going down to St. Kilda, Mrs. Sampson,' she said, "'and probably I shall not be back all day.' "'Which I hopes it'll do you good,' she answered, "'for you've eaten nothing, and the sea breezes is miraculous for making you take to your victuals. My mother's brother, being a sailor and wonderful for his stomach, which, when he had done a meal, the table looked as if a locust had gone over it.' "'Of what?' asked Fitzgerald, buttoning his gloves. "'A locust,' replied the landlady, in surprise at his ignorance, "'as I've read in holy writ, as how John the Baptist was partial to him. Not that I think they'd be very fillin', though, to be sure. He had a sweet tooth, and ate honey with him. "'Oh, you mean locusts,' said Brian, now enlightened. "'And what else?' asked Mrs. Sampson indignantly. "'Which, though not being a scholar, I speaks English, I opes, my mother's second cousin having had a prize at a spelling-bee, though he died early through brain fever, having crowded his head over much with the dictionary. "'Dear me,' answered Brian mechanically, "'how unfortunate!' He was not listening to Mrs. Sampson's remarks. He suddenly remembered an arrangement which Madge had made, and which up till now had slipped his memory. "'Mrs. Sampson,' he said, turning round at the door, "'I am going to bring Mr. Frettlby and his daughter to have a cup of tea here, so you might have some ready.' "'You have only to ask and to have,' answered Mrs. Sampson hospitably, with a gratified crackle of all her joints. "'I'll make the tea, sir, and also some of my own particular cakes, being a special kind I have, which my mother showed me how to make, having been taught by a lady as she nursed through the scarlet fever, though being of a weak constitution she died soon after, being in the habit of contracting any disease she might chance on.' Brian hurried off, lest in her Poe-like appreciation of them Mrs. Sampson should give vent to more charnel-house horrors. At one point of her life the little woman had been a nurse, and it was told of her that she had frightened one of her patients into convulsions during the night by narrating to her the history of all the corpses she had laid out. This ghoul-like tendency in the end proved fatal to her professional advancement. As soon as Fitzgerald had gone, she went over to the window and watched him as he walked slowly down the street. 
a tall, handsome man, of whom any woman would be proud. "'What an awful thing it are to think you'll be a corpse some day,' she chirped cheerily to herself. "'Though, of course, being a great swell in his own place, you'll have a nice airy vault, which would be far more comfortable than a close, stuffy grave, even though it has a tombstone and violets over it. Ah, now, who are you, impertinence? she broke off, as a stout man in a light suit of clothes crossed the road and rang the bell. A pullin' at the bell as if it were a pump handle. As the gentleman at the door, who was none other than Mr. Gorby, did not hear her, he of course did not reply, so she hurried down the stairs, crackling with anger at the rough usage her bell had received. Mr. Gorby had seen Brian go out, and deeming it a good opportunity for inquiry had lost no time in making a start. "'You nearly tore the bell down,' said Mrs. Sampson, as she presented her thin body and wrinkled face to the view of the detective. "'I'm very sorry,' answered Gorby meekly. "'I'll knock next time.' "'Oh, no, you won't,' said the landlady, tossing her head. "'Me not having a knocker, and you and your scratching the paint off the door, which it ain't been done over six months by my sister-in-law's cousin, which he is a painter, with a shop in Fitzroy, and a wonderful height of colour. "'Does Mr. Fitzgerald live here?' asked Mr. Gorby quietly. "'He do,' replied Mrs. Sampson. "'But he's gone out, and won't be back till the afternoon, which any message will be delivered to him punctual on his arrival.' "'I'm glad he's not in,' said Mr. Gorby. "'Would you allow me to have a few moments' conversation?' "'What is it?' asked the landlady, her curiosity being roused. "'I'll tell you when we get inside.' answered Mr. Gorby. She looked at him with her sharp little eyes, and, seeing nothing disreputable about him, led the way upstairs, crackling loudly the whole time. This so astonished Mr. Gorby that he cast about in his own mind for an explanation of the phenomenon. "'Wants oiling about the joints,' was his conclusion, "'but I never heard anything like it, and she looks as if she'd snap in two. She's that brittle.' Mrs. Sampson took Gorby into Brian's sitting-room, and, having closed the door, sat down and prepared to hear what he had to say for himself. "'I hope it ain't bills,' she said. "'Mr. Fitzgerald having money in the bank, and everything respectable like a gentleman he is, though, to be sure, your bill might come down on him unbeknown, he not having kept it in mind, which it ain't everybody as it have such a good memory as my aunt on my mother's side, she having been famous for her dates like a history, not to speak of her multiplication tables and the numbers of people's houses. It's not bills, answered Mr. Gorby, who, having vainly attempted to stem the shrill torrent of words, had given in, and waited mildly until she had finished. I only want to know a few things about Mr. Fitzgerald's habits. And what for? asked Mrs. Sampson indignantly. Are you a newspaper a-puttin' in articles about people who don't want to see themselves in print? Which I knows your habits, my late husband having been a printer in a paper which bust up, not having the money to pay wages, through which there was a due to him the sum of one pound seven and sixpence halfpenny, which I being his widder ought to have, not that I expects to see it on this side of the grave. Oh, dear, no! And she gave a shrill, elfish laugh. Mr. Gorby, seeing that unless he took the bull by the horns he would never be able to get what he wanted, grew desperate and plunged in Medeus race. "'I'm an insurance agent,' he said, rapidly, so as to prevent any interruption, "'and Mr. Fitzgerald desires to insure his life in our company. I, therefore, want to find out if he is a good life to insure. Does he live temperately, keep early hours, and, in fact, all about him?' "'I shall be happy to answer any inquiries which may be of use to you, sir,' replied Mrs. Sampson. "'Knowin' as I do how good a insurance is to all family, 
should the ed of it being taken off unexpected, leaving a widder, which, as I know, Mr. Fitzgerald is a-going to be married soon, and I hopes he'll be happy, though through it I loses a lodger as he always paid regular and behaved like a gentleman. So he is a temperate man, said Mr. Gorby, feeling his way cautiously. Not being a blue ribbing all the same, answered Mrs. Sampson, and I never saw him the worse for drink, he being always able to use his latch-key and take his boots off before going to bed, which is no more than a woman ought to expect from a lodger, she having to do her own washing. And he keeps good hours. All is in before the clock strikes twelve, answered the landlady, though to be sure I uses it as a figure of speech, none of the clocks in the house strike him but one, which is being mended, having broke through over winding. "'Is he always in before twelve? asked Mr. Gorby, keenly disappointed at this answer. Mrs. Sampson eyed him waggishly, and a smile crept over her wrinkled little face. "'Young men, not being old men,' she replied cautiously, "'and sinners not being saints, it's not natural as latch-keys should be made for ornament instead of use, and Mr. Fitzgerald being one of the handsomest men in Melbourne, it ain't to be expected as he should let his latch-key get rusty.' though having a good moral character, he uses it with moderation. "'But I suppose you are seldom awake when he comes in really late,' said the detective. "'Not as a rule,' assented Mrs. Sampson, "'being a heavy sleeper and much disposed for bed, but I have heard him come in out of twelve, the last time being Thursday week.' "'Ah!' Mr. Gorby drew a long breath, for Thursday week was the night upon which the murder was committed. "'Being troubled with my head,' said Mrs. Sampson, through having been out in the sun all day a-washin', I did not feel so partial to my bed that night as in general, so I went down to the kitchen with the intent of getting a linseed poultice to put at the back of my head, it being calculated to remove pain, as was told to me when a nurse, by a doctor in the hospital, he being now in business for hisself at Geelong with a large family, having married early. Just as I was leaving the kitchen I heard Mr. Fitzgerald a-comin' in, and turnin' round looked at the clock, that having been my custom when my late husband came in in the early morning, I bein' up preparin' his meal. "'And the time was?' asked Mr. Gorby, breathlessly. Five minutes to two o'clock,' replied Mrs. Sampson. Mr. Gorby thought for a moment. Cab was hailed at one o'clock, started for St. Kilda about ten minutes past, reached grammar school at, say, twenty-five minutes past. Fitzgerald walks five minutes to cabman, making it half-past. Say, he waited ten minutes for the other cab to turn up, makes it twenty minutes to two. It would take another twenty minutes to get to East Melbourne, and five minutes to walk up here. That makes it five minutes past two instead of before. Confound it! Was your clock in the kitchen right? he asked aloud. "'Well, I think so,' answered Mrs. Sampson. "'It does get a little slow sometimes, not having been cleaned for some time, which my nevy being a watchmaker I always sends it over to him.' "'Of course it was slow on that night,' said Gorby triumphantly. "'He must have come in at five minutes past two, which makes it all right.' "'Makes what all right?' asked the landlady sharply. "'And how do you know my clock was ten minutes wrong?' "'Oh, it was, was it?' asked Gorby eagerly. "'I'm not denying of it,' replied Mrs. Sampson. "'Clocks ain't always to be relied on more than men and women. "'But it won't be anything again as insurance, will it, "'as in general he's in before twelve? "'Oh, all that will be quite safe,' answered the detective, "'delighted with the information he had obtained. "'Is this Mr. Fitzgerald's room?' "'Yes, it is,' replied the landlady. "'But he furnished it himself, being of a luxurious turn of mind. 
not but what his taste is good, though far be it for me to deny I helped him to select, but havin' another room of the same to let, any friends as you might have in search of a home would be well looked after, my references being very high and my cooking tasty, and if— Here a ring at the front door called Mrs. Sampson away, so with a hurried word to Gorby she crackled downstairs. Left to himself, Mr. Gorby arose and looked round the room. It was excellently furnished, and the pictures were good. At one end of the room, by the window, there was a writing-table covered with papers. "'It's no good looking for the papers he took out of White's pocket, I suppose,' said the detective to himself, as he turned over some letters, "'as I don't know what they are, and I couldn't tell them if I saw them. But I'd like to find that missing glove and the bottle that held the chloroform, unless he's done away with them. There doesn't seem any sign of them here, so I'll have a look in his bedroom.' There was no time to lose, as Mrs. Sampson might return at any moment, so Mr. Gorby walked quickly into the bedroom, which opened off the sitting-room. The first thing that caught the detective's eye was a large photograph, in a plush frame, of Madge Frettlby. It stood on the dressing-table, and was similar to the one which he had already seen in White's album. He took it up with a laugh. "'You're a pretty girl,' he said, apostrophizing the picture, "'but you give your photograph to two young men, both in love with you, and both hot-tempered. The result is that one is dead, and the other won't survive him long. That's what you've done." He put it down again, and, looking round the room, caught sight of a light-covered coat hanging behind the door, and also a soft hat. "'Ah!' said the detective, going up to the door. "'Here is the very coat you wore when you killed that poor fellow. Wonder what you have in the pockets.' He plunged his hand into them in turn. There were an old theatre programme and a pair of brown gloves in one, but in the second pocket Mr. Gorby made a discovery none other than that of the missing glove. There it was, a soiled white glove for the right hand, with black bands down the back, and the detective smiled in a gratified manner as he put it carefully in his pocket. "'My morning has not been wasted,' he said to himself. "'I found out that he came in at a time which corresponds to all his movements after one o'clock on Thursday night, and this is the missing glove, which clearly belonged to White. If I could only get hold of the chloroform bottle I'd be satisfied.' But the chloroform bottle was not to be found, though he searched most carefully for it. At last, hearing Mrs. Sampson coming upstairs again, he gave up the search, and came back to the sitting-room. "'Threw it away, I suspect,' he said, as he sat down in his old place. "'But it doesn't matter. I think I can form a chain of evidence, from what I have discovered, which will be sufficient to convict him. Besides, I expect when he is arrested he will confess everything. He seems to feel remorse for what he has done.' The door opened, and Mrs. Sampson entered the room in a state of indignation. "'One of them Chinese hawkers,' she explained. "'He's been a-trying to get the better of me over carrots, as if I didn't know what carrots was, and him a-talking about a shilling in his gibberish, as if he hadn't been brought up in a place where they don't know what a shilling is. But I never could abide foreigners ever since a Frenchman, as taught me his language, made off with my mother's silver teapot, unbeknown to her, it being set out on the sideboard for company.' Mr. Gorby interrupted these domestic reminiscences of Mrs. Sampson's by stating that, now she had given him all necessary information, he would take his departure. "'And I hope,' said Mrs. Sampson, as she opened the door for him, "'as I'll have the pleasure of seeing you again, should any business on behalf of Mr. Fitzgerald require it.' "'Oh, I'll see you again,' said Mr. Gorby, with heavy jocularity. "'And in a way you won't like, as you'll be called as a witness,' he added mentally. "'Did I understand you to say, Mrs. Sampson,' he went on, that Mr. Fitzgerald would be at home this afternoon. "'Oh, yes, sir, he will,' answered Mrs. Sampson. "'A drink and tea with his young lady, who is Miss Frettlby, 
and has got no end of money, not but what I mightn't have had the same, and I been born in a geiger spear. You need not tell Mr. Fitzgerald I've been here, said Gorby, closing the gate. I'll probably call and see him myself this afternoon. What a stout person he are, said Mrs. Sampson to herself, as the detective walked away. Just like my late father, who is always fleshy, being a great eater and fond of his glass. But I took after my mother's family, they being thin-like, and proud of keeping himself so, as the vinegar they drank could testify, not that I indulge in it myself. She shut the door and went upstairs to take away the breakfast things, while Gorby was being driven along at a good pace to the police office to obtain a warrant for Brian's arrest on a charge of willful murder. End of chapter 9. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.